we are a reformed community of saints. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul is speaking to the church and challenging the church to walk according to the new self, to put on the new self. In fact, that's one of the themes, as Dr. David had said, the theme is the new life in Christ. And last week we saw the contrasting conditions of the old and the new self. The old self being apart from Christ and the new self now being created in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so our passage today will flesh out the very practical applications of this new and holy life as Drew preached last week. So if you found your place in Ephesians chapter 5, Four verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. I want to invite you to follow along as I read. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. June 6th of 1998. Unless that's your birthday, that day has no meaning or significance to you whatsoever. But it was a pivotal day for me. For me, that day marks the day that I stopped running from God and returned to Him as the prodigal returns to his father. I had been walking in the counsel of the wicked, as Psalm 1 says, standing in the way of sinners. And I was about to be at the point of sitting in the midst of the seed of scoffers. I learned a valuable lesson and valuable insight in the weeks following June 6th of 1998. And in those weeks following June 6th, I learned that if my life was going to be marked by the pursuit of Christ, I would need the surrounding influence of of a church family to support me. I would need the surrounding influence of Christian friends who believed in Christ as I did to strengthen me and walk alongside of me. I learned that I couldn't pursue Christ and remain in the world, that things had to change. That's when I met Tim LaFleur by God's divine providence. He taught me what it meant to put off the old self and how this is God's command for the life of a believer 
He taught me what it meant to put off the old self and the sinful patterns of life and to put on the new self and to surrender to the Holy Spirit's work within me and to allow the Spirit at work to develop new spiritually empowered patterns of life. This is what Paul is calling the church to in Ephesians chapter 4. He's calling the church to develop these new patterns, spiritually empowered patterns for life. So as adopted children this morning, here's what I think think we need to see from the text. As adopted children of God, we are redeemed from our old pattern of life and empowered to live according to a new pattern of life through Christ. That's the propositional statement there on your sheet this morning. As adopted children of God... We are redeemed from our old pattern of life and empowered to live according to a new pattern of life through Christ. As we read through the text, we see that it's filled with commands. It's the language of of imperative, commanding us, do this, put this away, put this off, put this on, put this off, put this on, here's why. Put this off, put this on, here's why. That's a pattern that we see that goes through the text that we're looking at this morning. But before we look at these as simply commands on a list that we can check off to make sure that we're living rightly before God, I want us to see the motivation that Paul gives for these commands. And it's for that reason I want us to start at the end in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and work our way backward through the text, back up to verses 25 through 29 of chapter 4. And so first we see a reformed community of saints will imitate God's work in Christ. A reformed community of saints will imitate God's work in Christ. You see, the call for every believer is to walk in true righteousness and holiness. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, to imitate God means to walk in righteousness and holiness. We see this in chapter 4, verse 24 from last week's text. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Or go back to chapter 4, verse 1. And we see Paul calling the church, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This call for the believer is a call to righteousness and holiness. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 1, when he says for us to be imitators of God and calls us beloved children, he's challenging us to to look as the child would look to one's parents. As a child looks up to his or her father and mother and says, Mommy, Daddy, I want to be just like you one day. The mother and father begins to swell with emotion, right? Happiness and thankfulness that this sweet moment has transpired. But then also perhaps the thought or the emotion of, apprehension, the motion of responsibility or the thoughts of responsibility. In that moment, parents realize the responsibility that's incumbent upon them. They're to love and to nurture and to shape that child into a young man or young woman of virtuous character. Psalm 127 verses 3 and 4 offer us a fitting application of this truth. The psalmist writes, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Listen, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, 
are the children of one's youth, right? The parents are shaping and sharpening those arrows so that they fly directly where they release them into the world. And so as a child grows, he or she watches dad and watches mom. They see their character. They see how they treat others. They see how dad treats his wife. They see how mom treats her husband. They hear how each speaks of friends, even how each speaks of enemies. They notice how each stands for what is just. And they observe the devotional life of mom and dad. And they learn to listen to mom and dad's counsel. And as parents entrust their children with responsibility to then go out into the world, they remind them of something. They remind them, listen, what you do reflects upon the family name. So be mindful of what you do. Follow me. Imitate me. It's amazing to me how parenting parallels the Christian life, particularly in our relationship to our Heavenly Father. I love how Proverbs chapter 1 begins. Verse 8 reads this. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. You see, the reality is whether or not we are, we are parents We've all had parents, right? And we can identify with imitating our parents. But in a much greater way, Paul's calling all believers to imitate God. We are God's beloved children who have been adopted through Jesus Christ as sons and daughters into the family of God. Chapter 1, verse 5 tells us this, that we have been predestined, he's predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And as family members, listen, as image bearers, our mission as believers, as sons and daughters of God, is to reflect God to the world. This is our mission, church. So here's the question. How do we imitate God's work in Christ? I think verse 2 shows us, and that is we're to walk in love. We must walk in love. He gives us the reason, verse 2, and walk in love, listen, here's why, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Here's why he commands us to walk in love. Here's how we are to imitate. Christ's love was displayed through his action. Christ's love was demonstrated on the cross when he laid down his life for the life of the world, right? And so Jesus took the initiative to hand himself over to death on behalf of believers, you and I. And so verse 2 describes the offering of his life on our behalf, get this, as a fragrant sacrifice, meaning it was pleasing to God. Jesus wasn't then the recipient of some Cosmic form of child abuse, as some claim. Instead, we see that Jesus willingly gave himself. He substituted himself in our place and supremely demonstrated his love for us. This is God's love for us. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, would give himself on the cross, submitting himself to death so that we might have eternal life and enjoy the benefits of being made in right relationship with God our Father, the one in whom we were created in His image to be in relationship with. This is God's love. And so to imitate God's work in Christ then, 
is to walk in this kind of love. What kind of love is it? It's a costly love. It's a selfless love. It's a love, get this church, that seeks to redeem and to reconcile people to God. So when we serve others in this way, we not only please God, but listen, we imitate both God and Christ. And this is how we display the image of God to his creation. So let me ask you, does this kind of love describe you, believer? Is this the kind of love Crosspoint exhibits to Baton Rouge and to the world? Is this the kind of love that we as neighbors in our community exhibit to those who live on either side of us? Is it a redeeming and a reconciling world uh, love? Is this the kind of love that we as believers exercise toward one another? Is it a redeeming and a reconciling kind of love? But the second way that we imitate God's work in Christ is when we walk in forgiveness. We see this in verses 31 and 32. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then listen, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Get this, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's a hard one to swallow, isn't it? How did God in Christ forgive you? Completely. Right? He satisfied God's wrath so that your sin, my sin, our sin would be forgiven. Verse 31 is filled with vices of the old self and they point to the natural inclinations of our flesh. Notice how they surround the dangerous emotion of anger. Anger becomes the seedbed of these vices and the destruction of anger can wreak havoc on our lives. This is what Paul is driving home. Bitterness and wrath. Shouting and slander. The word for slander is literally the word for blasphemy. It's to speak against the character of another, to defame them. Malice, meaning the mind is filled with thoughts that are injurious. It means that we're malcontent or we have malcontent for another. And what Paul is saying, these things must not characterize the life of the believer. In chapter 4, verse 2, remember the challenge that he spoke to the congregation of Ephesus and that we should hear. Here are the character traits that ought to be developed in the life of every believer, that we we would walk in humility, in gentleness, and in patience with one another, bearing with one another in love. Verse 32 instructs us then to be kind, to be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven us in Christ. You see, here's the point. God's pardoning love becomes the model behavior for believers toward one another. This is hard work, right? This is deep soul work. This is spiritual work that only comes through the transforming power of Christ's resurrection. Only by the presence and the equipping of the Holy Spirit can you exercise the kind of forgiveness that God in Christ exercised toward you. You can't do this in your own strength, believer. And so this call to exercise forgiveness must characterize, he's saying, it must characterize all believers' relationships. 
This is what it means to have the new self, to be to have the new life in Christ. Because this is the case, believer, when you withhold forgiveness from someone. You're walking in the flesh. When you withhold forgiveness from someone, you're allowing the old self to rule the day. We're walking in disobedience to Christ, and even more so, we're failing to show grace and mercy to an adopted brother or sister when God in Christ has shown us forgiveness a million times over for a much greater offense. What they did to you is nothing compared to what you did to Christ and what I did to Christ. And so we're to exercise forgiveness whether we're the offended party or the one who has offended someone else. It's God's way that we would seek reconciliation for Christ himself sought us out and reconciled us to God the Father even when we were the party that had offended him. Believer, has someone offended you? Have you offended someone? And forgiveness needs to be applied? Let me encourage you, don't remain in bondage. Be free from it. Just as God in Christ forgave you for much worse, exercise forgiveness toward one another, toward the body. Let us be people who don't harbor bitterness and wrath and malice and slander. But let us love one another. Let us forgive one another. Let us be imitators of God's work in Christ. Not only will a Reformed community of saints imitate God's work in Christ, A reformed community of saints will live for God's good pleasure. I want you to see this in verse 30. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, the one who's been born again is able only because of God's grace to live for God's good pleasure. Those who haven't believed upon Jesus Christ by faith, according to Scripture, cannot live For God's good pleasure. As Hebrews 11.6 reminds us. And without faith. It is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God. Must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 30 then builds on, on this scriptural truth. Namely this. That God has made his spirit. To dwell within every believer. Turn back to chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14. He says. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, it's only by the Spirit's presence in our lives that we are able, empowered, equipped to live for God's good pleasure. And so here's what will characterize a reformed community of saints. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. And because of that, God's spirit dwelling in us is teaching us and pushing us, pressing us into Christ so that we are living and learning to live for God's good pleasure. When we believed by faith upon Christ, we were sealed for the day of our redemption. And so His Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, 
in our lives testifies in two significant ways. There are more, but two significant ways that I want us to see. First, we've been forgiven of sin and we've been empowered to live a life of holiness and righteousness. How do we imitate God? By walking in holiness and righteousness. How do we do that? Through the empowered Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. The only way that we can please God. Secondly, the second testifier, testimony that the Spirit gives in our lives, is that on the final day, God will redeem us as His own possession. We have certainty and a guarantee that we will be with Christ for eternity. This means, though, that while our salvation is certain, it isn't yet complete. You see, we're all in process of being transformed, aren't we? We're all being shaped into the image and the likeness of Christ. We're learning to imitate God's work in Christ as we display God's image to the world. Get the church picture. Uh, Get the picture, church. Right? This is what... This is what God is doing in us and through us. And so Paul commands us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To grieve is to bring pain, to cause sorrow. Did you know that by the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, believer, God experiences pain and sorrow when we as his children sin? This is evidenced on the individual level and on the corporate level of the church. Our sin, my sin, the church's sin. It grieves God because it grieves His Holy Spirit whom He has made to dwell in us. And so as a Reformed community, we are to put off the old self, verse 22, put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and it's corrupt because it's got deceitful desires and it tempts you and it tricks you. And then verse 24, we are to put on the new self, right? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The point Paul's driving home is the presence of sin in our lives not only disrupts our fellowship with God, it disrupts our fellowship with one another. And it disrupts our mission in the world to be image bearers of God to a world that needs Christ. As a reformed community of saints, when we walk by the Holy Spirit in holiness and righteousness, we are living for God's good pleasure. So we see that a reformed community of saints will imitate God's work in Christ and will live for God's good pleasure. And lastly, this morning, we see that a Reformed community of saints will act for the benefit of our neighbors. We see this in verses 25 through 29. When Jesus was asked by a lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? He replied to that man in Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, this brings us back to imitating God, doesn't it? One chief way that we are to imitate God's work in Christ is to walk in love. 
And here Jesus is saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Tara's grandmother, I've shared this before, but it always comes to my mind. Tara's grandmother says, no one loves me better than me. She says that in jest, but isn't that true how we all feel? No one loves me better than me, right? And so Jesus says that we are to love others, love our neighbor as we love ourself. And of course, this means that we love our neighbors with a deep, great love that we would not do anything to hurt or offend them. And so as we act for the benefit of our neighbors, here's what we see first in verse 25. Since we are members of one another, we must speak truthfully. Paul quotes here from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. It's a text which, which points us forward to the peace and prosperity of God's dwelling place in Zion, in Jerusalem. Paul's application of this passage for the church, though, is significant because he's pointing out that God now dwells among his people in the presence of his spirit. And as new creations in Christ, we are to be a people characterized by truth, by righteousness and by holiness. And because of Christ's work on the cross, we're to put away falsehood, as he says in verse 25, and we're to speak truth and love. For how? For what? For the building up of the body of Christ. As adopted sons and daughters of God, we've been given a new identity in Christ. And the unity of our fellowship is now dependent upon our truthfulness with one another. See, we must be people of integrity who live lives of integrity. Falsehood, lies, hypocrisy will undermine the unity of God's work in us and through us to the world. And so this involves a way that we live before the world as members of the body of Christ, right? As members of the family of God, representing God to the world, bearing His image before a lost world who needs to know the hope of Christ. And so it not only involves the way that we live before the outside world, but it also involves loving each other enough to truthfully and even lovingly confront a brother or sister if a pattern of sin becomes evident in their lives. If a pattern of sin is evident in my life and I'm unaware of it, how will I know unless a brother or sister lovingly comes to me and says, I've noticed this in your life, gently, with humility, right? As he says in chapter 4, verse 2. But here's the model of how we are to live our lives together in fellowship with one another. Walking in love, not letting harsh speech and falsehood rule the day. Instead, speaking the truth with our neighbor, loving them and reconciling them to Christ. Secondly, we must not give the devil an opportunity by holding on to anger. We see this in verses 26 and 27. How do we live for the benefit of our neighbor? By not giving the devil an opportunity and holding on to anger. Verses 26 and 27 point this out. Paul knows that even righteous anger in the heart and mind of a fallen man can quickly degenerate into unrighteous anger. And it's for this reason that Paul cautions us by commanding us not to allow our sin to tarry. He puts a time restriction on it, right? Look at what he says there. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, there are many reasons why we experience anger, but most of them are selfish 
and most of them are unrighteous. The result of harboring anger is what we see in those vices listed in verse 31. Bitterness and wrath and malice, slander. But it can spread. It can spread to the rest of the body like a bad infection. Early on in ministry, I entered ministry with rose-colored glasses. I was naive in so many ways. There was a man in the congregation that I was pastoring. He was a member of the church, but he hadn't attended in well over a month. And one day, I was in my office, and a deacon stopped by my office, and he informed me that this particular brother was, he was angry with me. And I thought, my goodness, I don't know why he's angry with me. What have I done? And so I investigated a little bit more, and I was really surprised, but I found out that he was mad and angry at me because I had never visited him when he was in the hospital. And so I asked the deacon, I said, well, who went and visited him? He said, no one. I said, why not? He said, well, no one knew he was in the hospital. And so I did the same thing. I laughed. But the reality is this brother had isolated himself from the community of saints over something so silly and trivial being angry with me and I didn't even know that he was angry. I had no idea that this brother was harboring bitterness and anger in his heart and he stewed on it for over a month. Here's the result of of anger, right? That's left unchecked. Here's the result of not dealing with the issues that come up in our life. Here's the result of, of sin that can, can crouch in. It can cause us to retreat into isolation. And in the context of the church, it can do a lot of harm. It can cause us to break fellowship with the church. It can cause dissension within the church. It can brood controversy. It can cause us to develop bitterness in our attitudes toward one another who may or may not even know that we're angry, right? So here's the point. Paul's saying here, be angry. Do not, let, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because when you do, you give place for the devil to be at work in your life. And so we must guard our lives. We must guard this emotion and even keep it in check because it's a dangerous emotion. Well, thirdly, we must exercise generous giving through honest labor. We see this in verse 28, where he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see this reformation of this person's life? They go from being a thief to being a generous giver. Only the Spirit of God can do this in the life of a person. Sinclair Ferguson says, we are not owners of anything, but stewards of everything. I like that. This is true. God has gifted us freely, and because he has gifted us freely, he calls us to give generously and freely as well. In Luke's parallel account to to the passage in Matthew we looked at a moment ago, Luke speaks of the continued conversation between Jesus and this lawyer, In Luke 10, 29, the lawyer wanted to justify himself for lacking generosity. 
And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? If I'm to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? To which Jesus responded with a parable of the Good Samaritan. See, this guy wanted, he wanted to place limits on his responsibility. Yeah, I need to help people, but, but not, not those people. I need to give generously, but not to that person, right? So Jesus, concerned with teaching God's intent in the law, speaks and teaches that those who have received generously are to give generously. I want to affirm, just take a moment to affirm our congregation because I think Crosspoint does this so well. I think Crosspoint is, is strong in, in our willingness to give to others and to help others out. Paul commands the thief to leave behind the unethical ways and to work honestly to make a living so that he or she might be charitable in their support of the community of saints. And this is what I appreciate about, about Crosspoint, that we are charitable as a congregation. Our people give joyfully and, and give generously to those of our fellowship and even beyond those in our fellowship who have no, who have no needs. Each month we take up a benevolence offering on the first Sunday of the month, and we give that to the deacons, and the deacons have charge over that. And they help out the membership of, of the body. I've sat in many deacons' meetings, and I've listened to deacons as they have approved helping families that have had specific needs. And I praise God that our congregation is so willing to meet the needs of of another and to meet the needs of those who aren't even part of our fellowship. And I think all of this is to the glory of God. This is an area of strength for our congregation, so I want to exhort us. Let us continue to strive to this end as we act for the benefit of our neighbors and we live for the glory of God. And finally, I want us to see that we benefit our neighbors as we use our words to extend God's grace to all who hear. We must use our words to extend God's grace to all who hear. We see this in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, grace teaches us how to say the right thing at the right time. And the contrast between good and evil is highlighted through our speech in this verse. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This word for corrupting talk or corrupt, it's the word rotten. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, it's used to speak of rotten fruit. And in Matthew 12, 33, it's used to speak of rotten fish. You see, our speech shouldn't be harmful or unwholesome toward one another. It shouldn't have the the foul stench of rotten fruit or, or of rotten fish. But instead, it should have the fragrant aroma of a sacrificial and selfless offering. Before God, the fragrant offering of kindness, tenderheartedness, gentleness. You see, instead our words should be used, church, to build one another up. Our words are to be the means of of God's grace extending to those who hear. The new man, the new woman in Christ is to have radically different conversations that actually build others up and don't tear them down behind their back. Every word we speak is important and significant, and it has intention. 
and it has meaning. And it's either going to be positive or negative. It's not going to be neutral. So are our words being used to build others up? We're to be spiritually discerning so as to appraise all conversations, determining what edifying words might be given for the benefit of others and those who hear us. This is what Paul says. You see, we benefit our neighbors as we seek to build them up and as we use our words to speak God's truth into the lives of others. And so we see that a reformed community of saints will imitate God's work in Christ. And a reformed community of saints will, will live for God's good pleasure. And a reformed community of saints will act for the benefit of our neighbors. It's in these ways that a reformed community of saints acts and lives for God's glory. Let me ask you this morning, believer. Are you part of a reformed community of saints? Maybe this is the community of saints that you need to be part of. As we grow together and are reformed in our daily lives. Is your life being reformed by the grace of God as a testimony to the world? Is God using you and speaking through you? Are you striving to imitate God's work in Christ? Forgiving others and walking in love? Are you acting for the benefit of your neighbor? I pray that we are. I pray this is what characterizes our congregation. And I pray that it characterizes each of our lives. Let me pray and close us this morning. And you respond as the Lord leads. Father, as we have seen the truth of your word, Lord, teach us how we are to walk. Empower us by your spirit to walk in a way where we imitate your work in Christ to a world that needs to see the hope of the gospel. And Father, teach us to live for your good pleasure. Make that our chief desire. And Lord, would you strengthen us and empower us to love our neighbor as ourself. Would you strengthen us and empower us to act for the benefit of our neighbor as is fitting with the calling with which you have called us as a congregation and as believers. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.